0: I'm Megan,
1: I'm Christy, and I'm Nancy B, and we are
0: Murder murder Crew. crew. (laughs) So we're doing this, but a little bit differently, guys.
2: (laughs) Yeah, we are uh, remote recording, and so we're not together, so this is going to be, this is new for us.
1: This is interesting. This is very interesting. (laughs) well we always are
2: she's in a closet but I'm in a really tiny
1: closet all by myself it's weirder
2: (laughs) well thanks for joining us again for another episode this time brought to you by Miss Megan
0: yeah so um, yeah I'm going to be doing the episode today I'm going to just forewarn you that it is story out of Quebec so there's a lot of French names and stuff and I'm gonna do the best I can to pronounce them the best I possibly can but I am not French so (laughs) right
1: (laughs) there will be nobody take offense like yeah (laughs) we are
0: definitely doing our best
1: you know what actually I have my hand up oh okay I don't necessarily have like, you know, a question or anything like that, but I do have a little tidbit of something that I learned and this has to, I have to give a shout out to Dave here. Dave is my bartender. Hi Dave. (laughs) But I learned something today. It's in vino veritas. So it's an Italian saying, in vino veritas, and it means... And wine, there is truth.
2: That's pretty cool. But Brittany, you know, when you say, my bartender, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> what are
1: you trying to say? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah.
0: Nothing. there's thin. a lot of Daves?
1: There's not a lot of Daves. Dave, there's we question. just say
0: the fact that you have my bartender.
1: Oh, I don't
2: know. think either <laughs> of us have even a bartender.
0: Definitely not. I'm my own bartender.
2: <laughs> if you were to say like, oh, my hairdresser or my nail technician. No, it's my bartender.
0: <laughs> oh, boy. That's where
2: you frequent the most. <laughs> well, yeah. you know,
1: it goes. It is what it is. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Don't we have a case to be getting
0: to? You're hilarious. (laughs) All right. So uh, the case that I'm going to be covering today is um, another Canadian case, of course. Uh, But this one is a little bit different. I chose this one specifically because we are, I think it's important. It's an important case to cover for all of Canada it's a huge part of our history. I think this is the perfect time to tell it because we are coming up on to International Women's Day. Although we should be speaking about these things every day, but international women. Yeah. So I'm going to begin. So I'm going to yeah. start it off just by saying like some recent news um, on Monday, December sixth, just 2001, now known across Canada which I did not actually know this until I started researching the story. So that's kind of false. But known across Canada as the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. Mm. The Tragically Hip released the music video of the iconic band playing the song Montreal at the Molson Center, now the Bell Center, in 2000. And the video includes sketched portraits of all 14 of the women that we're going to learn about in this case. We will uh, include a link to the video in the show notes so that you guys can marvel in that beauty.
2: Who doesn't like the Tragically Hip, anyways?
0: Exactly, especially if you're from Canada.
2: I love the Tragically
0: Hip. They're iconic. Mm -hmm. Uh, But so here we begin. So on Wednesday, December 6th, 1989, it was cold. It was lightly snowing in Montreal, Quebec. It was just after 4 p.m. and starting to get dark outside. Marc Lapine walked into the registration office of a call Polytechnique, a prestigious university perched high on the mountain in the center of the city of Montreal. It is the University of Montreal's engineering school. There he sat for a few hours, not saying a word, not approaching the desk. He just sat holding a black garbage bag to which he had entered the school with. When the receptionist finally approached Mark to inquire about his presence in the school that day, Mark stood up and left the office. This must have been like some sort of a sign to him. He must have been it's like he was almost waiting for something to happen to make his next move. And I feel like he took, he may have taken this as a sign to move forward with the plans that he had been orchestrating for the days before March 6th. He was angry, ready to finally unleash that rage he had been holding onto for so long. As Mark made his way down the halls of Ecole Polytechnique, away from the office, he pulled from his black garbage bag, a loaded Ruger Mini-14 semi-automatic rifle. He walked into the closest classroom that he approached, ordered the professor and all of the men to leave. They did as they were told, without hesitation or protest, leaving nine unsuspecting, and I can only imagine, confused and frightened women alone in the classroom.
1: There was just the men?
0: He just had the professor who I, I'm going to assume was male and the men leave the classroom and they did. Wow. They they later would say that they thought it might have been like a, a year end prank because it was close to the end of the semester for that year in school. So they what? thought it was a prank.
1: I mean, it is easier for people to explain away stuff like that, right? It's no, that stuff doesn't happen here. There's got to be a different explanation, but yeah. in yeah. reality, it is exactly what it is.
0: Right, and right. It's, it's also 1989 as well, and like, touche. We didn't have the internet like we do now. Like people don't. We didn't Very have
1: different world
0: without the yes, World wide web. Yes, exactly, with the constant connection to the news, to right. see all of these events unfolding all over the world. I mean, it's not the first, and it will not be the last of an event like this. But back in that day, they didn't have such a, like, constant, like, um, access to information about them. So it, it makes mm-hmm. sense to me that they would think that, okay, this is a prank, so we're just going to leave, right. right? And this guy is a gun. It's visible at this point. They, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't jump, like, you know, try and defuse anybody holding a gun. Yeah. So they left and uh, alone in the room were nine women. What happened next would be so horrifying and clearly not a prank. Mark had the nine women line up. He faced them and yelled, you're all feminists and open fired on them
2: no oh my god yeah.
0: the gunshots echoed through the hallways of the university as Mark ran from the first classroom through the halls through the cafeteria and while he was running he was shooing all the men that he could out of the way and just pointing his gun at any woman that he came across while he went from one classroom to another
1: so he made it clear from the very get-go who his target was. And it wasn't any one person, it was just females in general.
0: Exactly. Women, just women. When he arrived at a second classroom, he did the same as he had done with the first. He separated the men from the women and continued his hate-filled chaos of shooting these terrified women. Lining them up and shooting them. Um, As he concluded his shooting spree in this second classroom. The daughter of a Montreal police officer, uh, Maurice Leclerc, stumbled into that classroom. After his final round of shooting, Mark pulled out a hunting knife and stabbed her multiple times in the chest, making her his final victim. There was a method to this madness. Once he had spent all but one bullet, uh, he had taken that final victim using the hunting knife because... Yeah, that bullet had a purpose. He had strategically brought it for himself. He silently concluded his task, only muttering to himself, oh shit, in English, as he scribbled words on an exam paper before using that remaining bullet and turning the gun on himself, ending what is now known as the Montreal Massacre.
2: What did he write on the paper?
0: I will get to it. Oh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah I, <laughs> I know I know um by 5 15, 14 women were dead 14 others mostly women some men did get caught in the crosshairs were injured and Mark's murderous rampage took less than 20 minutes
1: holy oh fuck <laughs> goodness so like, that's actually insane if
0: you do the math on how many victims there were yeah yeah i uh, bet that it didn't feel like 20 minutes to anybody that was in no, the school that day yeah yeah it's ugh, but whew, so these horrific events were the first of its kind in canadian history and nowhere in the entire world had women been targeted as a mass attack in many years. Yeah. Mark was born Gamel Rodriguez Liaz Garby in Montreal, Quebec, Canada on October 26, 1964. Uh, Mark's mother, Monique Lepine, was a Canadian nurse and an ex-Catholic nun who reject or rejected organized religion after leaving the convent. And his father, Rahid Garbi, was an Algerian immigrant and non-practicing Muslim. Mark, according to his mother, Monique, was, quote, a confirmed atheist all his life, unquote. His father, Rahid, held contempt towards women, believing women's only purpose, woman's only purpose, was to serve men. In 1967, Gamil's sister, Nadia, was born, and Rahid was said to have been abusive towards his wife and both his children, treating his wife as if she was his personal secretary and would slap her if she made any errors. Monique also discovered evidence that Rahid was having affairs while away on business trips. So, this is, I'm just trying to paint a picture of his
2: right. childhood like, here yeah, for everyone. Exactly like that that's it. Back that'll to do that.
0: it nurture versus nature here right yeah during mark's childhood the family moved around a lot due to rahid's work as a businessman they lived in costa rica and puerto rico until settling permanently in montreal in 1968 shortly after their return to montreal a stock market crash led the family to losing much of their assets Rahid became neglectful and continued to abuse his children, more specifically his son. In 1970, following an incident where Rahid struck Mark, leaving a mark on his face, Monique decided to leave Rahid once and for all. And in 1971, the legal separation was finalized and in 1976, they were divorced. Rahid ceased contact with his children shortly after the separation and Mark would never see his father again. Mm. After only two child support payments, Rahid stopped paying that as well and Monique had to return to work as a nurse. She also returned to school to take courses to further her career and during this time Mark and his sister Nadia were sent to live with relatives only seeing their mother on weekends. So Monique became concerned with her son who was shy and withdrawn. She even sought help from a family psychiatrist. The assessment concluded there was nothing wrong with the shy and withdrawn boy, but recommended therapy for his sister, Nadia, who was rebelling.
1: What? Ooh, actually? Yeah. Oh, that pisses me off so much. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God.
0: That's oh so like,
2: uh, <clears throat> it's such a, like, it's another example of, like, number one, back in in that time, you know, like, mental illnesses, you know, they are not talked about and they're not really... Um, recognized as such and not only that but oh like boys or men you know they can handle it they're tougher
1: like it's mm-hmm. nothing well there is that whole stigma of the woman's crazy right, right. Uh,
0: when mark was 14 he legally changed his name from gamil rodriguez Leas gramal to mark lapine in short mark's <clears throat> teenage years he was uncommunicative. And showed little emotion. But he wasn't crazy. He was fine.
2: <laughs>
0: just, yeah. Anyways. Now, <laughs> I am not a professional, but he definitely had borderline traits. Yeah. Maybe a sociopath, but, but isn't that what the point? do I know?
1: Is that the professionals that he was seeing and, like, just dismissed it? Yeah. Yep. Like, that's the point. We see it. We can sit here and talk about it and be like, da-doi. Yeah. <laughs> but back uh, then, it's like, <laughs> yep. oh, yeah, no, it's
0: fine. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. fine. Yeah. <sighs> so he also had chronic acne and low self-esteem. His sister, Nadia, would publicly humiliate him about his acne. And he began, like to... Yeah, no, he began to fantasize about her death. Sorry. Yeah, he also. even made a mock grave for her once.
1: What? What? Okay. Nice. I mean, like, <sighs> it's not very nice to make fun of someone with acne, but in yeah. no way, shape, or form, does that action warrant your death? Um, so in
0: 1981, mon- much to Mark's joy, at the age of just 14, Nadia was placed in a group home because of her delinquent behavior and drug use. Ooh. So to find a male role model for Mark, Monique enrolled him in a program for Big Brothers. And for two years, he bonded with his big. As a result, he was improving until abruptly in 1979, his big was detained on suspicion of molesting young boys. Oh, I figured that's
2: where that was going to go. Yeah,
0: Mark and his big both denied molesting ever occurred between them. But again, that could be, you know, not wanting to talk about it because he's a young boy. So
1: Yeah, back in that day. Yeah. So in
0: 1981, at the age of 17, Mark applied to the Canadian Armed Forces, but was rejected during the interview process. According to Mark himself, it was due to difficulty to accept authority. A statement mm-hmm. was released by military officials that stated that Mark had been, quote, interviewed, assessed, and determined to be unsuitable, unquote.
2: This reminds me of Carl hand's
0: room. Yeah. Fucking Carl. Carl.
1: Carl. <laughs> Carl. Carl. <laughs> Carl. <laughs> <Girl>. <laughs> anyway, back, back, back to the topic at hand. <laughs>
0: In 1982, the family moved to Saint-Laurent, closer to his mother's work. This began what Mark referred to as a period in which, quote, caused him no joy, unquote.
2: Just no joy.
0: No joy, yeah. So he attended school in Siegep de Saint-Laurent, taking courses in pure sciences He failed two courses in the first semester and improved considerably in the second. He also started working at the hospital where his mom was the director of nursing, serving food and doing custodial custodial work. So he was doing...
1: Sorry, Sorry, not to interrupt you. He was doing that whilst he was making good grades? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah. So he was, you know, he was... uh, He's, He's doing the go. damn
1: thing. He's doing the damn thing.
0: His colleagues said that he was immature, hyperactive, and seemed nervous.
1: I feel like you just could describe hey. me.
0: <laughs> he attended the college for one year before switching to a three year electronics technology program. He was doing very well until the fall of 1985 when there was an unexplained drop in his marks, in February 1986, he stopped attending classes without explanation. Mark moved out of his mother's house and applied to study engineering at Ecole Polytechnique at the University of Montreal. He was admitted, he was granted admission on the condition that he complete two compulsory courses normal we all you know there's always that like requirements that you have to have yeah so in 1987 he was fired from the hospital job for aggressive behavior and his friends described him as unpredictable flying into rages of frustration and his friends would later tell authorities after being fired mark's Mark spoke of going on a murderous rampage and then committing suicide. Let's ignore the red flags, right? In the fall, to complete his college courses on on student loans, he took three courses in which he did very well in. And in 1988, he began a computer programming course in computer programming at a private college. From what I found at this point in his life, he was trying really hard to get a girlfriend. But he was known Ooh. to boss women around. He often showed off his knowledge in front of them, made them feel stupid. He was also known to speak openly about his dislike for feminists. So obviously, women were not drawn to him. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Why? Red's my I'm favorite
1: scared. color. Why? <laughs> Red flag. Oh. I wonder Why? <laughs>
0: So he was now living in downtown Montreal with his school friend. He took a CGIP night course in solution chemistry, one of the requirements for Ecole Polytechnique. Um, And he ended up getting 100% on his final exam. Damn. Wow. So in 1989, he applied again to Ecole Polytechnique, but was rejected due to not having completed both of the courses Required for admission, he only so did the one, the not the other. He's yes, been
1: rejected?
0: yes. Okay. Um, well, the first time he was admitted, but he had to complete these courses, and he did. He completed one, but he didn't complete oh, the yeah. other. Okay, okay. So Sorry.
1: just trying to... this.
0: I'm. Yep. Uh, no, I totally get it because it's important that we understand here that he was told that this is what you need to do to be accepted, and he didn't do it and was rejected. Okay. Makes sense to me.
1: Makes sense to me now too,
0: thank you. Right. Yes, but this sent him into a rage. He abandoned this commu- the computer program course that he was taking. And in 1989, he met with the university, the Ecole Polytechnique admissions office and complained about how women were taking over the job market from men. <laughs> oh, More red flags that- here to ignore.
2: I mean, let's not take responsibility difference? for our fucking actions.
1: Let's
0: just blame no, it for all sure. on
1: women. Well, right? It's like, oh, for I didn't sure. do what I was supposed to do. It's a, their fault. The female's fault. Like, yeah. get a real. Oh, my God.
0: <laughs> so, so far, what we've really learned about Mark is that he had a similar contempt for women that his father did. He spoke yeah. openly to his friends about going on murderous rampages and he was rejected by a call polytechnique for not completing one of the two compulsory courses in which was a condition to be accepted his talks of murderous rampage soon became more than just words 1989 he began to put his plan into motion and in august he picked up an application for a firearms acquisition certificate And in mid-October, he received his, on November 21st, he purchased a Ruger Mini 14 semi-automatic rifle at a local sporting goods store. So between October and December 1989, Mark was seen several times around the the school, around Poly, uh, École Polytechnique, presumably getting the lay of the land. Normally very punctual with his rent, Mark failed to make his December rent payment, and on December 2nd, 1989, he bought his mother a birthday present, even though her birthday was not for several weeks. Monique also discovered that Mark brought two bags of belongings and a note to her home instructing her to remove the fridge from his apartment, unknown to Monique, only four days later, her son would be dead. It would be around the one-year anniversary of the massacre in 1990 that Mark's suicide note, the note that I can only presume he was scrawling on that exam paper before he shot himself, would be released to the public. So I have um, the translation from French to English here, and I'm going to read that. Here's the note. It starts, and I quote forgive the mistakes i had 15 minutes to write this see also annex would you note that if i commit suicide today 891206 it is not for economic reasons for i have waited until i exhausted all my financial means even refusing jobs but for political reasons because i have decided to send the feminists who have always ruined my life to their maker for seven years life has brought me no joy and being totally blah i have decided to put an end to those varigos.
1: i like i don't i don't even understand this I know. essentially he's like saying that My belief in women are like the reason I I don't understand any of it. I don't understand.
0: In my youth, to enter the forces as an officer cadet, which would have allowed me possibly to get into an arsenal of Prasid Lorti 1 in a raid, they refused me because antisocial. I therefore had to wait until this day to execute my plan so he he's saying he tried to get into the armed forces to get the guns Right. so in between i continued my studies in a haphazard way for they never really interested me knowing in advance my fate which did not prevent me from obtaining very good marks despite my theory of not handing in work and the lack of studying before exams even if the mad killer epiphy will be attributed to me by the media I consider myself a rational a, a, a rational that only the arrival of the grim reaper has forced to take extreme acts for why <laughs> persevere to exist If it is only to please the government, being rather backward-looking by nature, except for science, in brackets, the feminists have always enraged me. They want to keep the advantages of women, example, cheaper insurance, extended maternity leave, preceded by uh, preventative leave, etc., while seizing for themselves those of men. Okay. Thus, it is an obvious truth that if the Olympics, Olympic Games remove the men-women distinction, there would be women only in the graceful event, so that feminists are not fighting to remove that barrier. They are so opportunistic, they do not to neglect, to profit, from the knowledge, the knowledge accumulated by men through the ages.
2: How does he go from maternity leave to the Olympics? Like, right? how does he make that leap? Yeah. <laughs> uh, in the 15
0: oh, minutes that God. he was scrawling this before he took his life, like this letter, right. like this note is, it blows my mind. We will post a copy of it in the links in our show notes because it's hard to understand. They, so moving on, they always try to misrepresent them every time they can. Thus, the other day, I heard they were honoring the Canadian men and women who fought at the front lines during world wars. How can you explain that since three women were not authorized to go to the front line? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Will we hear of Caesar's female legions and female galley slaves? who, of course, took up 50% of the ranks of history, though they never existed.
1: This is literally just rambling. Yeah.
0: Oh A my. real sassus s- s- belly. Sorry for this too brief letter. I'm Mark brief- Lapini. <laughs> Could have been briefer, Mark. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> he also included annex. A list of 19 names and telephone numbers of 19 women he identified as feminists and wrote at the bottom, these women nearly died today. The lack of time, because I started too late, has allowed these radical feminists to survive. Ali Jakta S. To die, the die is cast, is how he ended this letter. So it took them a year to release this. It was in his pocket. He scribbled it down in the classroom. shot a- In an article published in December nineteen, uh, sorry, in an article published in December twenty nineteen issue of Canada's History magazine by Francine Pelletier, a journalist who had worked for both print and electronic media for more than thirteen years, her name was on Mark's list. really that was included in his suicide note
2: that's terrifying
0: so francine wrote um an article about the whole thing and i i felt it was important to include i unfortunately i have a huge chunk here because this is from the perspective of a woman that found out that she was on a kill list yeah this next part is an exact quote from her, webs- uh, from her article. We will link that in the show notes as well. Um, because I don't normally like to use such a huge chunk of an exact quote, but I think it's important to hear this in her own words. Right. Uh, you can definitely read the full article. It's, it's very lengthy. But uh, here it goes, and it begins here. Lapine's suicide note was sent to me anonymously by mail. On the eve of the first anniversary of Montreal massacre, after discovering that my name was among those, along with 18 other women included in his suicide note, women seemingly exemplified what he hated about femini- feminism. I had tried to get the note released. What had happened at a call polytechnique? was not just another bit of sordid news, I argued. First, to the Montreal police and later to an Access to Information board. It was a national tragedy. People had the right to know what the motivating factors were behind this unprecedented crime. I also felt that I had the right to know what Lapine's thoughts had been just before killing... 14 women while having me and others like me in his mind my I, I arguments have... oh yep sorry I
1: have a quick question sure so did they not even release to the women that were named on the list in his suicide note did they not even tell them
0: they didn't No. they are you they... kidding me so somebody <laughs> anonymously sent the suicide note along with the list to this Francine Peltier. Oh Pelletier. okay. Yeah. So th- and, and she's a she's a writer and she has been a writer. So she like you know I think they found her on the list and thought she would be a a good person to get this out because they like I will continue in her story here but they they tried to they tried to prevent the release of this letter. So she continues. My arguments had fallen on deaf ears. The danger of a copycat crime was too great. I was told. What was in fact too great? It was clear even then was the trauma. Even six months after the tragedy, we we were still in the grips of vast emotional paralysis. The inclination was to move on. Rather, to, rather than to scrutinize every detail. Now, finally holding the much sought-after piece of evidence in my hand, I felt somewhat vindicated. At least someone at the Montreal police thinks I'm right, I thought, because she assumes that the letter was sent to her by a police officer. Right. I was never able to discover who that person was, but at least the suicide note would now be made public. It was published the very next day on the front page of La Presse, the newspaper for which I wrote at that time.
1: I thought you were just being fancy and said La Presse.
0: <laughs> La Presse. No, it's a La French. Presse. La Presse. Yeah. No,
1: got yeah. it.
0: <laughs> Feminist attitudes have always made me rage, the killer went on to explain Calmly, dispassionately, even taking the time to apologize for his bad grammar, Lapine decreed how women expect the same privileges as men, but still wanted to be coddled. Even though the media will label me a crazed gunman, I consider myself a rational erudite, he added in a somewhat pro-ethic note. prophetic, prophetic, prophetic note, prophetic, thank you, prophetic note, had this clumsy one-page manifesto been released at the time, I've often wondered how we have been better able to stare the devil in the eyes, would we have been able to admit that this was not only a vicious attack against women, but war against feminism, as Lapine himself took pains to point out would we have labeled him as we should have as he should have been a terrorist someone who kills innocent people for political reason is after all the very definition of terrorist would we have acknowledged the political nature Uh, The political nature of his gender specific crime and would we have been better at understanding what this was all about 30 years after the fact many candles have been lit white ribbons have been shared some assault weapons have been banned and denunciations of violence against women have become a yearly ritual at Parliament Hill and elsewhere it took some time particularly in Quebec, but we have collectively owned up to the fact that this is indeed a crime against women. It took some 30 years to acknowledge that this was a crime against women. Ugh, and yet, Unreal. She, yeah, she <clears throat> continues, and yet I can't help feeling that we still haven't learned the lesson of the Montreal massacre. In trying to make sense of this horrible tragedy, we have equated to plight of the victims with the violence women have always endured, we have put this in the category of what we know rather than what we don't know. I think this is a mistake, but never focusing to this day on the truly unusual aspect of the crime and attack on feminism. We have been prevented from seeing what's at the bottom of this, as recent events have now underlined men's access to women's bodies so we will i will include the link to the full article i know that was a lot but i will include the link there is a lot more but i just felt it was really important to get her words out because she is of all the people that have an opinion on this event she is she is a voice that needs to be heard
2: well, she literally lived through it, and she's literally a name on a paper of somebody who's yes. uh, somebody's hit list. And, and can she- you imagine receiving that letter anonymously, whether mm-hmm. it was in like with the best intentions or not? But and and like that shit's gotta haunt you for the rest of your life. Like that has to have some trauma response um, yeah. on its own, and like let alone having lived through that massacre, right? Right. That's unreal.
0: And so to be told that, you know, like, in that way as well, that the person that committed these horrible acts against these innocent women was doing it in your, like, with you in mind. You were his real target. Like, that's something that's going to live with you for the rest of your life.
2: Yeah. And, And like, in a sense, like, the way she says, you know, how she's talking about, like, how dare they not – release that letter right away you know they're sitting on it like yeah they do have a right to know they do have like you can't just move on from it of course you want to analyze it and by not doing that like this is a crime against women and they knew that but they hid that and that's in Mm -hmm. a sense just protecting him yep you know not the women
0: and it also makes you wonder if this anonymous person hadn't sent her the letter would we have ever got gained access to it And maybe we would have, but how long would it have taken them to release Exactly,
1: Yeah. It took 30. Like, would any of the progress a lot of true crime cases have taken? Would a lot of it happen if it weren't for that one person that had information and came and spoke up? Like...
0: Yeah.
1: It really does only take that one yeah. person. That one person makes or breaks it, right? So it's the same on the other end. Yeah. It takes that one person not to say something and for something to go unsaid for years.
0: Yeah. It mean it was in 2019 when Ecole Polytechnique, the massacre called Polytechnique was finally recognized as an anti-feminist attack and It took that 30 years also for Parliament to designate December 6th, the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. A day to remember the victims and to reaffirm Canada's commitment to fight the hatred that led to this violence. December 6th, also side note, falls within the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence, which spans from November 25th to December 10th. Fun fact. Didn't know that. I did want to close the episode by remembering the victims in the words of the ones who loved them and knew them the best we're going to start with Annie St. Arsenal she was a curious uh, meticulous and intensely caring woman always searching for adventure of her own making she wanted to make the world a better place and wrote poetry and she liked to build with her hands. She was 23 and studying studying mechanical engineering and was attending her final class before graduating when she was killed. Helen Coolgan was according to her father, Clarence, a contentious and patient girl and always pushed things through to the end. She wanted to go to the farthest limits of life. She had so much ambition and hope. Helen was a strong student. She had a very bright future ahead of her. She was 23 and at the tail end of her degree in mechanical engineering at the time of her death. She was weighing three job offers and just weeks shy of a planned trip somewhere warm with friends to ring in the new year. Her best friend, Natalie uh, Crote, Natalie Coutu was also killed that day. So Helen, so that was Helen Coolgan. So next is Natalie Coutu. She was outgoing and enterprising with passion for learning, particularly when it came to science. She was 23 and just weeks away from celebrating the new year on the beach with her closest friend, including Helen Coolgan. Her father, Ferdinand, was filled with rage at the loss of his daughter. He told newspapers he had taken it out on the walls of his home. Oh. Barbara Danu was not, not someone bound by um, condensational limits. She was ultimately following in her father's footsteps and studying engineering. While she attended studies at École Poly. She also worked as a teaching assistant to her father, Pierre Alain, a mechanical engineer professor at the University of Quebec in Montreal. She, 22 and only a month away from graduating as an engineer and already thinking of her career prospects. Her mother named her after a poem by Jackie Prevost, which Laurence Ferlinghetti translated into English. Remember, Barbara, it rained all day on Brest that day, and you walked smiling, flushed, enraptured, steaming wet in the rain. Anne-Marie Edward. She loved to ski. A neighbor told Montreal Gazette they often saw her and her family bundled into the car to go to the slopes. She was buried in her school team ski jacket. And her teammates from the University of Montreal downhill ski team wore patches with her initials after her death. She loved all sports, including extreme sports, such as whitewater rafting and rock climbing. She loved to challenge herself, even if she was unsuccessful. She was only 21 and studying chemical engineering at the time of her death. She was also known for being clever and stubborn. Her mother told La Presse that Anne-Marie would be proud to see her memory being used to end the Je- I know, <laughs> I'm getting kind of emotional. But... Yeah, that's tough. <laughs> uh, Genevieve Bergeron was smart enough to try to choose between a career in engineering and one in music. She played the clarinet and sang in choir at the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. When Genevieve wasn't studying or singing. She was swimming, playing basketball or babysitting Montreal mayor, Jean Carr's youngest, Jean Cor's youngest child. Her mother was quoted saying Genevieve was sweet, generous, bubbly with life. She was a real ball of fire and a total woman. Genevieve was cele- Genevieve had celebrated her twenty first birthday and was just weeks before her death. Maud Havevanirich have uh, wait havi sorry my apology was first and foremost an artist she described. she was described as a go getter who gave pursuit she took on her all her mantra was if you feel like going all the way well just do it she was 29 already had a bachelor's degree in environmental design i and like start- it. i know started out <laughs> her working life do As it, an do interior it. designer, creating habitats for community living. She Aww. chose to return to school at Polytech, uh, at Call Poly, to fulfill her dream of being an engineer and studying materials engineering. Her sister, Sylvie, co-founded the December 6th Victim Foundation Against Violence in Her Memory, along with other people who lost loved ones in the attack.
1: Can I just say something, listening to you, reading all yes. of these from the victims, it kind of puts it all into a bigger picture for you, for yes. for me, anyway, So Yeah. Uh, like, that it's, you know, all, these are all people that could have been amazing and done amazing things in the world that now, instead of doing that, we're talking about how they could have.
0: Yeah, it's just, absolutely.
1: it's it, it, it well, it yeah. such a...
2: Perspective. And I was thinking that too I and mean, you know like he's not killing these women because they're feminists quote unquote he's you know he's pissed off that women are doing better than him yes. you know in my perspective anyways. That's yes. my point
1: well of it, and, and it's not only that though it's he looks at his target and tr- I feel <clears throat> he looks at his target and tries and be like oh this person's a feminist but I'm pretty sure that if you have a vagina, that's all that matters. <laughs> if Dan, yeah. Right. Yep. Right. So he can explain it away all he wants to, but Absolutely. at the end of the day, if you had a vagina, you were in, you were in danger from this man.
0: I agree. So I've only got a couple more left here. So next we have, all right. Next we have Barbara Klucznik Vider Barbara was outgoing, friendly, and had what her husband described as a great deadpan sarcasm. Barbara was a whiz studying engineering, economics, and food logics. She was a woman who looked outward. Her husband said she spoke five languages, read a lot, and wasn't shy about sharing what she'd read, and she loved to help people. Barbara can
2: name five languages. I
0: know. (laughs) Barbara and her husband, Wittold, 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 fled Poland for Germany in 1986 after the country was put under martial law. There they managed to get an aunt in Quebec to sponsor them. Canada seemed safe, they thought. Plus, Barbara was interested in Quebecois culture. They landed the spring of 1987. Barbara was 31 and in her first year of nursing school at Ecole Poly when she was killed. Barbara and her husband were having a meal in the cafeteria when Barbara was killed. Wittold survived the attack. Anne-Marie LeMay wanted to study medicine. She wanted to go into healthcare but chose to study mechanical engineering instead in large part because of her close friend. When she was a teenager, one of her close, close friends uh, lost use of her legs. And it was Anne Marie who visited him weekly to help his rehabilitation. And it was then that she realized the importance of mechanical devices. She never dwelled on problems. She was, a, she was so social and played band. She was organized and studious. The night before she was killed, only at 22 years old, she studied all day and then wrote herself an unfortunately present note. Tomorrow is the last day of classes and of my life, too. Whoa. Now that sounds depressed at 3 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Her close friend, Haiti Rathgen. Was a survivor of the massacre and now a spoken advocate for dr- gun control. So Maurice Lajnier was shy. Was a shy newlywed with a beautiful smile. She was a budget clerk for the school's finance department, and that's where she met the love of her life, Jean Francois, in 1986. At the Jean end of Francois her Francois work- sounds like Jean Francois. I know. I, I like
1: love Jean-Claude it. Van Damme. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <I've watched laughs> That's like a real I'm lady killer. I'm
0: sorry, yeah, i oh. uh, So she was at the end of her work day. She had already put on her boots and coat to leave. She tried to fight him and shut the door. Well, Jean-Francois has... Uh, she tried to shut the door, but he got in. Yeah, so... Jean-Francois has built a life since Maurice's death. He has remained a stout advocate for gun control. Still, he's told La Presse, he never got to, quote, where I trusted in life enough to want to bring a child into the world.
2: Oh.
0: At the time of her death, he believed that she was newly pregnant.
2: No. This is so fucking sad.
0: Maurice Leclerc was a rebel, a go-getter who did not care what people thought of her. She liked to listen to British punk and new wave music. For months before she was killed, she's fallen in love with a classmate, classmate named Benoit. They wanted to study and travel. The weekend before Marise was killed, her father, Le, P- Le Pierre Leclerc, was with the Montreal police and had dinner with Benoit. She was wearing, Benoit is a woman, by the way, she -hmm. was wearing a brand new red sweater purchased specifically for the holidays. On the night of the attack, the lieutenant spoke to the media outside of the school and then went inside and saw the red sweater. Marie's was found dead near the man who killed her. She was wearing Benoit's sweater and he went into the school and was the one that found her. He, he was quoted saying, "We think of our daughter every day." And on the, anniversary, the 25th anniversary of the, tax, the attacks, uh, he said, "We talked about it often with our other three daughters. It caused an, caused an unbearable pain. Sonia Peltier was the person who won every competition secured every scholarship and always beat out others for top of the class. She was quiet, undemanding person who grew up with five sisters and two brothers and yet her intelligence and liveliness stood out to many. Sonia was 28 years old, just days from graduating with a degree in mechanical engineering and a transcript of straight A's when she was killed. Michelle Richard, or as she was known by her nickname Mimi, had a brilliant smile, a calming presence. There was something her friends couldn't quite put their finger on that drew people to her. She was 21 when she was killed, a strong student in her second year of material engineering. Michelle planned to get engaged to her boyfriend, Stefan in the spring of 1990. They'd known each other for nearly four years, and he was with her in class when she was shot and killed. A few days later, Stefan told a reporter that Michelle was a gentle girl, happy, brilliant, beautiful. She lived every moment intensely. She abhorred violence. Michelle's mother joined other parents following the Montreal massacre to ask, in advocating for restrictor gun control. And last but not least, we have Annie Turkerot. Turquot, Annie Turquot. She was the youngest of three children drawn to a call polytechnic because of her older brother, Donald. She was gifted. Her intelligence won her a women in science bursary. Annie was most interested in metallurgical engineering. In many respects, she was a woman ahead of her time, committed to nature and finding ways to protect the environment. Annie was 21 years old when she was killed, and on the 25th anniversary of the massacre, her mother told LaPresse that despite the years, Turcotte is forever our darling daughter. We've always kept her very much alive in our house. So these were the amazing, smart, beautiful women who all had promising futures ahead of them before they were taken long before their time in such a cruel way, so suddenly on December sixth, nineteen
2: eighty nine. Wow, oh, that's so sad. And so I really that... appreciate that you were able to, you know, read their names and um, yeah, you've been yeah, giving them, them a voice. Yeah. and
0: humanize them more than just their names too like right. there I
2: feminist women that were yeah. like they were people they had futures they had families they had dreams you know and if you are somebody who's listening to this and this is a case that's close to you like our most sincere condolences um, Absolutely. we know that this isn't something that you would just get over um, I'm sure you live with it every day of your life as a very tremendous loss um, and something that's very traumatizing.
0: So, absolutely, it's such a huge like. There's so much to unpack here. Like, I it, will say, look, yeah.
1: There's a silver lining, you guys. Is that yeah. there are more and more people like me, like you, Megan, like you, Christy. Thank there's you. more and more people out there like us that are asking these questions, looking absolutely. into these kinds of things, listening to these podcasts. And that's why, and I know we've had this conversation before, it is really important to have these conversations about these cases that maybe people don't know about because it it, it really is important to bring a light to it and to Absolutely. let people know what's really happening outside their back door.
0: I'm so very well. I'm very glad that we have this platform in which we can share these these cases. Yeah, and bring yeah. light back to them, and right. remind people that these things happened, and we should never forget that these things happened. We should never yeah. forget these these women that were killed this day.
1: We should never forget the victims. The victims always have a voice that was absolutely kind of, like, too soon, right? yeah exactly. but that is where we have the platform that we have and you know what? Yep. i'm not gonna lie i'm pretty impressed with ourselves we did this remotely today i'm looking at you two on a screen rather than face to face but i think this went rather well i just hope I- the audio's okay so
2: you guys like don't don't listen to this if the audio is bad and think like oh my god these girls suck like i promise you we are working towards better equipment Absolutely. Absolutely. Even if we're recording remotely, we can bring you the best um, quality. Like
1: most of our listeners know, life gets in the way from time to time, and it doesn't always happen perfectly. So this week we just so happened to record. We needed to record separately, and you know what? We're doing the best that we can. We hope that you guys still enjoyed the episode this week, and that sound quality editing is. To your satisfaction, but oh, we I fun we're more interested in getting the episode out to you guys. So. Yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah, and I had yeah.
2: fun
1: tonight. So I did, I too. did too. And I just
0: That's want to great. apologize one more time if I pronounced any of the names wrong. I did the best that I could. Um, I apologize if anybody is offended by my very. Horrible French pronunciations. English is hard on good d-
2: um, yes. You can always catch us on our socials. We are on
1: TikTok at Homebrew Murder Crew.
0: We're on Instagram at Homebrew Murder Crew.
1: We're also on Facebook at Homebrew Murder Crew. You can also email us any cases, any feedback, any anything you may have. Our email. Is homebrew murder crew at gmail.com.
2: Thank you for listening. I will catch you in a couple of
1: weeks. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Everybody in Vinal Veritas. <laughs> 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 Love you, bye.